0: Hello, Culture Gap Fest listeners. I'm Sam Adams, the editor of Slate's Browbeat Culture Blog and the host of the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club, a podcast series exclusive to Slate Plus members. In the club, I've been talking to some of the best culture critics around about some of the best conspiracy thrillers of the past few decades, including All the President's Men, Blowout, and The Conversation. Right now, I've got the latest episode for you, where I talk to New York Magazine's Matt Zoller Sites about the paranoid classic The Parallax View. To listen to all the episodes, read essays on the films, and join our Facebook group to talk about the movies, visit slate.com slash thrillers. Enjoy the episode. I'm Sam Adams, the senior editor at Slate, and this is the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club. On this episode, we're talking about The Parallax View, which is one of the cornerstones, if not the cornerstone, of the classic 1970s paranoid thriller. Directed by Alan Pakula, who would go on to make the real-life conspiracy thriller All the President's Men, also the subject of an episode in this series, it stars Warren Beatty as Joe Frady, a small-time reporter who stumbles onto evidence that the assassination of a presidential candidate was the work of the Parallax Corporation, a secretive and apparently global organization that specializes in killers for hire. He decides to infiltrate the organization by posing as a would-be assassin, but he has almost killed himself several times along the way, and the closer he gets to the truth, the more dangerous it becomes. It's a frightening and a beautiful movie, and I'm glad to have Matt Zoller here to talk about it with me. Matt is the TV critic for New York Magazine and the editor of RogerEbert.com, and he's also the author of several books, including the Wes Anderson Collection, the Oliver Stone Experience, and with Alan Sepinwall of TV The book. Matt, welcome to the club.
1: Hey, I, I, should we be telling people that we're meeting if this is a paranoid thriller? Uh, shouldn't we not let anyone know? I think this is a soundproof room,
0: so it, <laughs> but, I, or, but we also do have like a large screen. I feel like we should be recording this in a parking garage, though. <laughs> we could, well, we'll talk entirely in whispers and make people crank this up in their earbuds. <laughs> Um, So one of the things that I've found kind of interesting to ask people on on the podcast so far is their history with these movies. I mean, in in a lot of cases, the other are movies that go back to the the 60s and and 70s. And many of the people that we've talked to do not go back quite that far. So uh, do you remember sort of, you know, when the first time you watched it was, your reaction, and if it's kind of changed over the years? The Parallax View? Yeah. Well, I believe I was in college. And
1: I saw it in a film semiotics theory class. The teacher showed it. I believe it was mainly for the scene towards the middle of the movie where Warren Beatty's character, Joe Frady, is going to basically audition to be an assassin. He believes that this corporation is hiring assassins to call politicians. So he's going to audition to become an assassin so he can infiltrate this organization from the inside and expose them. So – He goes into this room and he sits down in this chair that looks like the captain's chair on Star Trek almost, and the lights go down. Welcome to the testing room of the Parallax Corporation's Division of Human Engineering. You
0: will now please cross to the chair.
1: And you will sit down, make yourself comfortable. And be sure to place each one of your hands on the box on either side of the chair. Making sure that each one of your fingers is on one of the white rectangles. Just sit back. Nothing is required of you except to observe the visual materials that are presented to you. All right? We hope you find the test
0: a pleasant experience.
1: And on the screen there appears this Succession of still images with this kind of beautiful <laughs> 70s. It sounds like music from like a, a shampoo commercial almost. Like it's a really sort of counterintuitive music to be playing. And you're seeing images that you would see in color magazines from the time or in political commercials. There's apple pie, there's, you know, a house with the sun behind it, there's a big American car, there's a steak. There's like a beautiful blonde woman with her hair blowing in the breeze. And then there's Thor, like the mighty Thor makes an appearance. And it becomes clear as this thing is going on that the images are being shown to Joe, not just in order to test his reactions to them, but to compel a sort of emotional identification with the people who are showing him these images. And and I, I wrote a piece a number of years ago for Salon about... I just chose like 10 of what I thought were the greatest edited sequences of all time. And this was number one, because I think this four minutes contains like everything that cinema is about is contained here because you're seeing the same images repeated over and over again. But at every step of the way, the image changes its meaning depending on the context and depending on what's in front of it and what comes after. So anyway, that's why. I saw the parallax view It was because really the teacher just wanted us to see this one image because, you know, it would be a springboard to discussion of editing generally. But I liked the entire movie. And, in fact, I think it's as close to a perfect film as I've ever seen. And it's really tight. It's I think it's like less than 90 minutes or just right on the button. And uh, it doesn't have an ounce of fat on it. And it tells you a lot more than you think it's telling you. You know what I mean? It's not like... So many movies with a plot as intricate as this one would be constantly shoveling you exposition verbally and clarifying things. And this is the thing I love about a lot of 60s and 70s movies. There are long sections of the movie where you're not entirely sure what's going on, but that works because Joe doesn't know what's going on and he's your guide through the movie.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how that works. I mean, there are off-screen reasons for that. I mean, this movie, when it was being made in 72, 73, was kind of coming up against a potential writer's strike. So there are rumors that, among other people, uh, I think there are three credited screenwriters, including um, Lorenzo Semple, and then there are rumors that also an uncredited Robert Town and, and Beatty himself had some, s- some... That would not surprise me. And there's a, a an anecdote, which is good enough to pass on whether it's true or not that Hume Cronin, who plays Beatty's editor in the movie. The Ben Bradley character, basically. Yes. In in the, the book that the movie is loosely drawn from, Beatty's character is actually a police officer. And there was a script where he was a police officer, and then there was one where he was a journalist, and then they maybe changed it back to the police officer. So the story is that Hume Cronin called up Alan Pakula, you know, the Friday before the Monday he was going to shoot and was like, am I playing a newspaper editor or a police captain? I need to know which character I'm coming into play on Monday. So, so Mm. some of the, some of the looseness of the film may be due to that. And there are, I mean, there are kind of large chunks of what would normally be exposition in most movies left out. You don't really understand how Beatty's character ends up in certain situations, how he figured certain things out, why he's in certain places. And I, You kind of have to talk about mood with this movie a lot. There's it's a really incredible triumph of directing, cinematography, of music, of editing. Gordon Willis, of course, the Prince of
1: Darkness they called him, shot this, and and it was the same year that he did uh, Godfather Two.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. And
1: the music by Michael Small is one of my favorite scores. Yeah.
0: So I feel like the effect of the movie is because there's so much left out is you kind of have to become a paranoid conspiracy theorist yourself to figure it out. You are kind of responsible (laughs) for figuring out how Beatty ended up here. Yeah, and
1: you also are not sure, like, I would say that that montage sequence that I talked about is a microcosm of the film itself. Like, Joe's relationship to that little experimental film that they show him to test his reactions is sort of like our relationship with the movie The Parallax View in that... We see certain familiar situations that are repeated over and over in different locations and under different circumstances, but our interpretation of them changes depending on where we are in the story and what we've seen Joe go through already. And and whether or not we think he's faking it, there becomes this question as he's going through the movie where he is pretending like once he figures out, okay – this is a company that hires assassins what sort of people become assassins and the answer is angry disturbed loners so he tries to turn himself into an angry disturbed loner who is convincing enough to be hired by the Parallax Corporation so that he can expose them but the more time we spend with Joe the more we begin to wonder if he doesn't naturally have the temperament of one of these assassins that he's trying to profile that like he's actually it's really not that much of a performance he doesn't fit in at work he doesn't seem to have any kind of a social life he He's hyperverbal and very educated, but also very self-righteous and angry. He's a guy who lectures instead of talking, and he always has to be right, and he sort of has this me-against-the-world sort of mentality, which is the mentality of a lot of people who end up shooting politicians. And there's this incredible scene, I think it's halfway maybe or two-thirds of the way through the movie, where an ambassador from the Parallax Corporation comes to visit him in an apartment, which I don't think is his apartment. I think he's just pretending it is, but that scene is like an audition. And Beatty, the actor, becomes Joe Frady, an actor, pretending to be right for this role so that he gets the gig. But in fact, he was born to play this part, I think. Can I know your that you have remarkable talents. Yeah, what do you mean by talents? You have difficulty holding on to a job, don't you? I don't know, I just don't like to take a lot of shit so people say I got antisocial tendencies.
0: Right. <laughs> Tell me, has it ever crossed your mind that maybe it's
1: everybody else's problem that they don't get along with you? Why? Because you see, the very quality that gets you in trouble is what makes you potentially invaluable. What's that? Your aggressiveness. Aggressiveness. I. Uh, I don't want to intrude on you while you're reading, but get in touch with me personally if you'd like to go further.
0: Right. There's a scene where, um, and just to give a little setup, um, and as I will mention in this podcast, as I have in the others, that this is a spoiler-friendly zone, which is to say, if we are at a point in the conversation where we need to talk about the ending, we can talk about the ending. But just if you're listening and haven't seen the film, the setup is is that there's a political candidate is assassinated in the first scene of the movie at the top of the Seattle Space Needle. Beatty's character is on the ground floor, does not witness it, but someone he knows does. And over the Next three years. He's
1: convinced that he saw somebody else there who was the real killer.
0: Right. And And no one believes him. Yes. And then the movie kind of jumps three years forward and he's apparently been obsessed with this thing. It's nearly cost him his career and he is just getting his way back into his editor's good graces. (laughs) And then this whole thing resurfaces again. And he partners with a friend of his who's like a former FBI agent to set up this phony personality. Right. It's great they set up two phony personalities. So there's the person that he is pretending to be, and then the person who is pretending to be that person, so that if they uncover the first identity, and get through into the second one, they won't look at that one as hard. Oh, I forgot about that part. And the the FBI agent says, "We so we need to make you look like someone who has something to hide. You should look like somebody who's afraid of something, something he doesn't want anyone to know." Is what he said. And they they come to the conclusion that they should make him uh, what is referred to in the film as a weenie wagger, which is someone with a history of of indecent exposure. Right. But Warren Beatty's character is also a drunk. Yes. And so it, it does, as you're saying, com- it completely fits his he's a drunk real personality. And he's a
1: drunk and he has a temper. Yes. And you often see him provoking confrontations that are really not necessary just yeah. because that's what he does.
0: So the anger and shame that is in him, neither of which are qualities necessarily in short supply in mid-career level journalists. <laughs> but they, also, they also do fit the profile of a isolated loner yes. and a potential assassin. Um, which plays very heavily into the eventual um, ending of the movie. It's a great. I don't know if we are we going to talk about
1: that ending. I feel like we have to. I, yeah, I'm I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, then here we go. Spoilers. Uh, you skip ahead x number of minutes, whatever this <laughs> ends up being. But we should take a little detour here, and I think before we talk about this ending, because I want to contextualize it within the genre of the paranoid thriller. I am an absolutist. I am. A complete annoying absolutist about the term paranoid thriller. I think the term paranoid thriller gets thrown around entirely too often. A lot of times I see people using it, including some of my colleagues, to basically it sounds like they think that if a movie has a sense of paranoia or there are a lot of paranoid characters in it, it's a paranoid thriller. That's not the case. Like the paranoid thriller is a very specific kind of movie. In my opinion, it is a movie that is about. Uh, having a vague inkling of what the answer is, but never being able to reach it. That's one thing. And tied in with that is this idea that something rotten is afoot in society, and it it is coming from an institution. Maybe you don't know which one, but you're going to find out. And once you've identified the institution, you're trying to figure out who is responsible in this institution for the spread of the evil that is adversely affecting our life. And the ultimate answer to this question is you're never going to know exactly what happened you're never going to know exactly who was responsible and the institution being faceless is going to continue and yeah. some in some guys like and i had a discussion i did this book with simon abrams that's coming out in the fall that's about a film by guillermo del toro specifically about His movie, The Devil's Backbone, in the period in the late 90s when he was writing it, during which his father was kidnapped by Mexican drug dealers. So it was like the most intense period of his life when he was writing this movie. So it's kind of a biography in a way, almost in addition to being about this movie. But anyway, we were talking about thrillers and about paranoia in context of what was going on in his life. And we started talking about paranoid thrillers. And he went on this wonderful rant, which I can't wait for people to read, about how one of the things that drives him crazy about American commercial cinema is this one bad apple thing where it's like there's a problem and once we get to the bottom of it, it's there's one bad apple in an organization and when we get rid of that bad like it's a corrupt cop, it's a corrupt DA, it's the corrupt, you know, guy who works at Monsanto or whatever. And once you get rid of that person, things are fine. Because the, the institution is fundamentally sound. The, the institution is fundamentally sound. And this is what bothered me about, say, the Catherine Bigelow movie Strange Days, which I think is otherwise a great film, is that ending seems to imply that once they have removed the corrupt racist police officers in the department, things are going to be fine now. Which is a bizarre thing to suggest in a movie that's about the relationship between people of color and the Los Angeles Police Department you know like yeah. why would you say something like that in a film of that nature everybody knows it's bullshit like if any movie cried out to be a true paranoid thriller it's that one yeah but most movies don't have the guts and you and you mentioned to me the other movies that you're going to talk about during the series and you mentioned enemy of the state i don't like enemy of the state and i don't consider it a paranoid thriller because it's basically the conversation with a happy ending yeah There's like a corrupt I think he's like the chair of the Department of Defense or something like he's a high muck. He's like a
0: rogue NSA agent. Right. He's a high muckety
1: muck in the in the intelligence community. Right. And once they bring that guy down, everything's fine. Yes. As if like the CIA and the FBI are basically like efficient and ethically sound organizations that are just doing the Lord's work. Yeah. You know, it's ridiculous. Anyway, Del Toro was talking about this, how much he hates this. And that's one of the reasons why he loves the Ridley Scott movie, The Counselor, because he said at the end of it, you feel like there's a pervasive corruption that's not going to go away simply by taking out one or two people. Yeah. And that's what The Parallax View does, I believe, better than any other paranoid thriller. It's the truest of paranoid thrillers.
0: One of the really interesting things about the movie, one of the really interesting things that it does is Warren Beatty, as we mentioned, is the star and the central character of the movie. He was in 1974 you know, a very big movie star. But the movie almost keeps him out of the first scene entirely. The sort of opening shots of the movie are this senator, I think he's a senator, um, holding this press conference at the base of the Seattle Space Needle. And the first shots of the movie, you really have to watch it several times to see Warren Beatty in them at all. There's this big crush of press around this figure, and Beatty is kind of in the back of the shot. I didn't even realize until the second time I saw the movie that he was even in that scene. Yeah, and I think his second... There's one line he has where he's trying to get up to the top of the Space Needle, and he gets turned away. Yeah, And then I think his second line is eight minutes into the movie, which is just a very strange thing to do with a movie star.
1: With Yeah, when you got Warren Beatty. yes. Yes, it is.
0: And then the final sequence of the movie, or the climactic sequence, I guess, kind of does the same thing. There's incredible uh, long shots of this mostly empty kind of airplane hangar where this political banquet is being set up. And And they're rehearsing. Yes. They're
1: doing like a sound check, I think.
0: Yeah, and Beatty's character is kind of just a tiny blip. I mean, he's out of a lot of the movie he's as well. A dot. Yes, but he's just this little figure in this little slice along the bottom of the frame. It makes him so unimportant mm-hmm. in the scheme of things.
1: Yes, yes. So this ending, you know, the the reason we I went on that detour about like my definition of a paranoid thriller, which is you don't get the answers and evil continues. Yes. You know, the era this comes out of is the Vietnam watergate era when we felt like the wheels had fallen off the wagon and they were never going to be put back on that's where this comes out of and that's a sensibility that i would argue has never entirely left some of us um (laughs) you know but in order for it to be a true paranoid thriller you can not have like we got the tape that proves that so and so did it right can't do that but if you accept that definition and a lot of people don't there are not very many movies that really are paranoid thrillers because hollywood can't support that kind of bleakness
0: no, one of the things I think it's become a tradition on the podcast of me bringing this up in almost every episode. But there's a great interview with with Errol Morris on the Criterion Blu-ray of The Manchurian Candidate, where he talks about how I guess he's using a broader definition than yours, but but a lot of paranoid thrillers are kind of comforting in a weird way because they tell you that someone actually is pulling the strings, and those people kind of be identified, and in the case of The Manchurian Candidate, kind of beaten, and there there is something weirdly kind of placating about that mm. and this this movie does not give you that kind it of catharsis really, it
1: really does not and there are only a handful of other movies that I think qualify as true paranoid thrillers I think Clute is one of them I think the conversation is one we normally think of that as a character study primarily but I think that counts as a paranoid thriller and certainly in the way that he never really gets the answer that he spent the entire movie pursuing, and we're still not entirely sure what happened at the end of that thing. And I would say Oliver Stone's GFK is a true paranoid thriller, because despite that, I think, rather hilarious pivot at the end where he walks out of the courthouse with his head held high and the music swells and changes into a major key, like in an old Hollywood movie, and this is the end. We know, and Oliver Stone knows that this is bullshit and that he lost Yeah. He lost. like Jim Garrison loses at the end of JFK. He fought the good fight. That's where the inspirational aspect comes from, but he didn't win.
0: Well, because the movie is coming out in 1980, whatever. 1991. 1991. And obviously we walk out of the theater back into the world where most people believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone.
1: Right. Well, and also this (laughs) is the, uh, it was a perfect time to release that movie because it was, you know, at the tail end of the uh, Reagan Bush years. And what was happening in 1991 was we had just concluded a very brief, very one-sided war that we were told was about beating back imperialism by Iraq, but was in fact about oil. And, you know, that's a very cynical time to put out a movie that's basically telling you where that sort of impulse comes from.
0: And that, that is a movie that in some ways is kind of like if you took the, uh, the parallax test, I guess people call it, but that sequence that you were talking about in this movie and you made that into an entire feature. You would end up with something like JFK.
1: I think you would. I think you would. But yeah, I think the parallax view is also, you know, in addition to its film historical significance and its example as I think the crown jewel of the paranoid thriller subgenre. It's also just a great movie. It's a great movie. Just the way it's made, like notwithstanding um, whatever difficulties they may have had behind the scenes, which I wasn't aware of a lot of that stuff. But now that you mentioned that, I guess I can see that. But I don't think there's anything about this movie that could be better, only different. And the leanness is part of it, but the way it's shot is yeah. a big part of it. It's a very patient film, and they often put the camera very far back so you weren't sure what to look at, which contributes to a feeling of paranoia, where it's like, why is the camera here? What am I supposed to be looking at? So that makes you uneasy. And then there's a lot of darkness in the shots, because Gordon Willis shot it, and he loves chiaroscuro lighting. And then there's the score by Michael Small, which, as I said, is like one of my favorite scores of all time. And one of the things I love about it is there are a lot of great scores that are, they're sort of right in terms of mood for the movie in a general sense, they work, but it's very rare that you come across a score where the idea of the movie is expressed in the way the score has been composed and orchestrated. And this is one of those scores. And if you listen to this music, what you hear is a very gentle kind of reassuring woodwinds. And I think there might be some subtle horns in there that are sort of like the music you would hear in a Frank Capper film. Right. It's like the hero is mounting the steps of Capitol Hill to go give his filibuster. And And the snare
0: drum and the the drum rolls. Yeah, yeah.
1: but it's like, you know, it's like a Mr. Smith goes to Washington. But then underneath it, there's this dissonant, You know, I was going to sing that like a chiming bell. Yep. Yeah. And that undertone is what makes this whole idea come together, which is underneath the placid surface of America with its iconography of apple pie and sunlight and stacks of cash and, you know, blonde women serving as prizes for businessmen. There's this undertone of something really fucking sinister.
0: And I no. think it I think I have this right. I think musically it's actually there it's sort of in two registers because there's kind of conventional it's conventionally sort of harmonic music and then there's this weird A- 12, 12 tone
1: it's an atonal uh, kind of uh, thing happening.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really it's it's almost literally two con- two different ways of looking it at the world. It is two
1: different ways and it also expresses the bifurcated consciousness of Joe. Yes. You know, like he is the righteous crusader for truth justice in the American way but there's also a dark, scary kind of destructive rage in him that he is only dimly aware of at best. And you could say that about, you know, but ain't that America? You know what I mean? Like, it, I, I mean, I know it sounds corny to say that, but we present this image to ourselves as like we're the mighty conquering Thor with his hammer, like in the test sequence of the parallax view. But right. placed in a different context, it's like a big, scary dude with a hammer who's going to bash your brains in.
0: Well, and one of the things that that test sequence does, and you you mentioned in the the salon piece that you wrote, you compared it to the famous Kuleshov effect, which yes. is a kind of classic cinema experiment where the same shot of a man's face can make him look hungry or sad or happy depending on right. the shot that blank, follows it. Right, close up of a
1: guy's blank face plus slice of pie, and people watch that and go, the man is hungry. Yes, yes, yeah. It's really, it's a great. I've actually seen that the Kuleshov test illustrated with other footage. And that's actually the way it works. And, and the it's way that,
0: that sequence works is it takes these kind of, you know, mom, apple pie, wheat fields, these sort Norman, Norman Rockwell... Images and then it starts juxtaposing them with Dorothea Lang or, or, you know, Walker Evans photos of, yes. of like the Great Depression and these iconic images of the Viet Cong assassinating people in, in Vietnam. And then, and they're kind of presented in serial, oh, these are the good things, these are the bad things. And then eventually it starts cutting from like Uncle Sam to the Nuremberg rallies. Right. And it, it all gets yeah, jumbled.
1: Yeah. They're making, they're associating JFK and Nixon with Hitler. And it's interesting because what I find when I watch that sequence and I've got, I, You know, I've watched that sequence so many times that probably if I admitted how many times the police would come and talk to me. (laughs) But one of the things I think about when I watch that sequence again is how is Joe reacting to this? We never see it. We never cut back to him. That's very daring that they never cut back to him and show how he's reacting. But I'm always wondering, is Joe authentically uh, sort of intuitively reacting to the images in an honest way, like somebody who walked in unawares would, or is he acting Because he's in this chair, which presumably is measuring his responses. So is it like when you're trying to fake your way through a lie detector test? Like the picture, it says dad, and there's this naked boy running down a hallway, and there's this big guy, presumably his father, with a belt in the foreground. Is Joe making himself react with horror and shame and sadness at that image so that they'll go, oh, he's the kind of guy we want to recruit as an assassin? Or is he already feeling that way? Because that's a part of his experience. Right. I mean, it's a very rich. I mean, like, there's an entire movie in that four minutes. Right. You can and, kind of make your own movie about Joe while you're watching,
0: though. And it is fascinating that. Um, There's several different versions of the scene out there, like the the original Lorenzo Semple script, which is entirely different. Hmm. Um, but, you know, needless to say, even the, the shooting script, there were cutaways because, of course, you want to know you're. this is a movie about Warren Beatty. You want to know how Warren Beatty is reacting to this. None of that is in the film. We effectively kind of become Warren Beatty for those five minutes. Yes. And that's what
1: to me that makes the movie. That sequence, you know, it would be an excellent movie anyway, but that's the sequence that makes it one of the all-time classics, I think. And the reason why that sequence is so great, apart from just the way that it's conceived and executed, is the fact that they don't show us Joe. That's really great. Like, that's the masterstroke of the whole thing, is not showing us Joe. Because all of a sudden, the movie is happening to us.
0: This is ostensibly a test, but then you have to wonder, and people have built entire... You know, fan theories about this because it plays more like a kind of brainwashing film than it does yeah. a reaction. Than is and after that, the movie really changes tone, and it's almost like you know he's been brainwashed, or we've been brainwashed, or the film has been brainwashed. Everything seems off. Or from that point on.
1: Or is the purpose of the film to brainwash you? I don't know if brainwash is the word I would choose because I feel like one possibility is that it is meant to tease out the reactions of somebody who they would want to recruit. And part of that is feeling like you are the victim in your own life. But now, thanks to us, you have a chance to be the hero, you know, and it's like the beginning where they show you, you know, home, mother, father. They're showing you like my feeling is. If you walked into that room and sat in that chair, you're somebody who's going to look at the early part of the film and go, that's not me. That's not my home. That's not my mother. That's not my father. That's not my country. I don't know who these people are. They're they're not me. And then when they start to show you the more disturbing sort of skewed vision of when it says home and there's like a cluttered, dimly lit, unhygienic looking hovel. I think the person watching this movie in the chair at the Parallax Corporation is going to say, yeah, that's me. Yeah. That's me. Like now this movie's talking to me. And when it starts showing you like images of patriotic iconography, of apple pie, of the president and, you know, cheering crowds at rallies and stuff, that's like I think the parallax recruit would be saying, "I hate those people. I hate those bastards. I wish I could kill them." And then the thing gets more violent as it goes along and it's like, "Yeah, like those guys."
0: Yeah, you know. Well, then there is. There's a you know photo of of Oswald and other people in there, and it's also the the scene you mentioned before, where his fake character is being recruited, and he's kind of play acting this character is also kind of him, and the the parallax recruiter says to him after Beatty, I think he kind of you know burns himself while cooking something, and then just like throws the pan. And I wonder, the room. does he
1: actually burn himself, or is he faking it so he can show? An eruption of rage and impress this dude.
0: But the recruiter says to him, you know, that's the quality that has kept you from keeping any other job is what makes you perfect for this one. Exactly. We want your anger.
1: Yes, there's that. So there's that one possible function of the film, right, which is to... Identify and perhaps coax out the sorts of reactions that would mark a person as a good recruit for the Parallax Corporation. So that's one thing the film might be doing. But the other thing it might be doing, which I think maybe fits better with the idea of this as the ultimate paranoid thriller, is the purpose of this movie is to identify someone who is play acting a part in order to get them to recruit him. You know, like that they're not actually looking for killer. And this brings us to the ending. Yeah, And if you've hung with us this long, you obviously don't give a damn about spoilers. <laughs> so here we go. You know, Joe is not only killed at the end of this, but his entire thesis in the beginning was the person who was accused of being the assassin during that killing at the Space Needle of the senator was not the real killer. And he got thrown off the top. I guess he fell off or I can't remember. He dies. He falls he, off. The he edge.
0: falls off. But you presume they would have got to him some other way. They would way. have
1: gotten him some other way. But anyway, this guy was a patsy. You know, if you buy the idea that Oswald was not the real gunman, that he was a Patsy, this guy was Oswald in this scenario, right? And at the end of the movie, Joe is Oswald. And the entire purpose of Joe infiltrating this corporation is to stop them from assassinating more people. And he thinks he's being recruited as an assassin, but he's actually being recruited for Patsy. And that's sort of the ultimate twist is he thought that he was auditioning for one role. And in fact, he got cast in a different one without his knowledge. Right, And it's one where the end of the story is he gets shot, and they pin the killing on him, and and it wasn't really him that did it. After careful deliberation, it has concluded that George Hammond was assassinated by Joseph Frady. An overwhelming body of evidence has revealed that Frady was obsessed with the Carroll assassination, and in his confused and distorted mind, seems to have imagined that Hammond was responsible for the senator's death. He was equally convinced that Hammond was somehow plotting to kill him. And it is for those reasons that Frady assassinated him. Although I'm certain that it will do nothing to discourage the conspiracy peddlers, there is no evidence of a conspiracy in the assassination of George Hammond. And it's like, and the cycle continues.
0: Right. And there is a level of the movie that you can, you know, maybe, you know, overemphasize, but there is, you mentioned, you know, the, the parallax test part is it's sort of like a, a deconstruction of the act of watching the movie. And the movie is itself very much kind of about the assembling of narrative and the way that the conversation and blowout also kind yes. of reflect on the way that movies are made. And there's a, yeah,
1: that blowout last... and the conversation and this are all films about filmmaking.
0: Yeah. And that last assassination kind of takes place. They're practicing the rally, this political rally that's going to take place that night. And one of the elements of that are this group of, I think they're high school kids in the stands and they're all meant to hold up cards and turn them over. And every time they do, it shows the face of a different president and it's Washington and then it's Lincoln and right. then it's Teddy Roosevelt. And then eventually it's the guy who's going to be right. assassinated. And just the idea of you put all these little squares together and it kind of looks like the face of this person. and Willis, in this movie, as he does in All the President's Men, loves these kind of long vistas of uh, rectangular grids that also kind of harken back to North by Northwest.
1: Yes. Frames within frames.
0: Yeah. So the idea that, you know, you're putting all the pieces together and getting something that looks like a picture, you know, and the name of the movie is about essentially an optical illusion. It's about how things can look entirely different when you look at them from a different angle. Right. So that becomes so important to both the story of the film and how we watch it.
1: Absolutely. And as is so often the case with the truly great films, it is a movie that is about an idea. And every every scene, every line, every shot, every choice that they make is about exploring or emphasizing that idea. And that thing that you talk about that the school kids do with the cards... That is a metaphor for the movie you are watching. It also is a great little mirror of that sequence that we've been talking about, where you're reshuffling the same still images, and depending on how you arrange them, they present a different view of the world. And, like, these are the same cards. They're just being arranged in different ways to create the face of a different president, depending on how they're put together. Everybody's on the same page, you know, aesthetically and philosophically in this movie in a way that is very, very rare. I think like even in really good movies that really have it together, that really know what they're trying to do and what they're trying to say. There's usually something that's a little like, why is that in there?
0: There's nothing like that here. Right. It's immaculate. That's one of the things that I think has made it such an enduring template. I mean, I I think it's a movie that in some ways is more kind of known or or talked about than watched. And one of my secret goals for this episode in, in particular is to kind of agitate for a better, it's only kind of available now in a grotty, you know, DVD quality transfer. And right. It is in desperate need of a restoration and high depth, you know, Blu-ray quality uh, transfer. So this is this is the time where I'm like, someone get on that. It, yeah, right absolutely,
1: now. absolutely. I showed it at a film festival in Ireland about eight or nine years ago. And we tried to get a 35 millimeter print and uh, there was some kind of issue. I can't remember what it was, but we ended up having to show a DVD. And it was uh, cropped. Oh, It yikes. was cropped. And it was like, it's like a knife in the heart when a Cinemascope film is cropped. It's like, ugh. <laughs> I'm like Selma Diamond on Night Court. Like, why don't I just go hang myself in the toilet? And I actually said, like, we should just cancel it. And it's like, no, they're already here. Let's show it. I'm like,
0: no. Yeah. No, it's a sin. It's a sin, Ma. Yeah. So let's, I mean, but do you see its influence a lot in, in other things that you're watching?
1: I see its influence in a lot of things. I mean, you know, there's obvious examples like on Mr. Robot, which is, I would say, actually very close to being a true paranoid thriller. I don't think they've been off message yet with that. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if they end by killing the hero. Yeah. That's the kind of show that it is. Like, I think they have that kind of nerve. But also in stuff like, you know, we mentioned JFK, and you were mentioning before we started recording the Bourne films. I think the Bourne films have a very strong sort of parallax vibe, even though obviously they're they're action movies and, you know, there's more like badass James Bond stuff happening. But like the whole notion of, you know, as Norman Mailer put it in Harlot's Ghost, that the national security state is the true author of American history. That's an idea that is embedded in pretty much every frame of the Bourne films. And I do like that they sort of split the difference in the Bourne films between the one bad apple, all's well that ends well ending, and the it's institutional you're never going to get to the bottom of an ending. They kind of get to eat their cake and have it too, because the first movie, it's like he's Frankenstein's monster who's going after his creator, and he gets him. But then in the next movie, it's like, but the creator has a creator, so he has to get him too. And the third movie, it's like the creator behind the creator behind the creator is who he's going after. And it's like right. there's there's always another dad. There's always another evil dad to go after in these movies. There's no end to the number of evil dads. So I feel like the Bourne films are kind of ingenious in that way, in that they're presenting, they're presenting a face to you as if. I'm an action movie about a you know stalwart hero who gets the bad guy in the end, but in reality, it's just an endless chain of despair.
0: Right. You know, <laughs> it's kind of the happy the poor bastard. It's kind of a happy overlap between the the paranoid thriller and the unending franchise.
1: It is. It yeah. is, and it also like has that thing in common with the ending of JFK, which I talked about, which is like you come out of JFK going, well, that was a happy ending, but then you think about it for five seconds, you're like, God, he didn't accomplish anything, did he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: On that note, um, (laughs) having accomplished nothing ourselves, I want to thank Matt Sight for coming in and accomplishing whatever it is we've accomplished.
1: Thank you very much. And I won't tell anybody that we had this conversation, and I hope you won't either. Mum's the word. Okay.
0: This has been the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club on the Parallax View, which you can rent online. Read more about the movie and join our Facebook group to discuss the film at slate.com slash thrillers. Our next episode coming in two weeks will be on John Carpenter's They Live with Time Out New York's Joshua Rothkopf. Watch along with us. The series is produced by Chow 2. Slate Plus's editorial director is Gabe Roth. And I'm Sam Adams. See you next time.